Okay, I guess we can get started. So, last class, um, I said that I would try to spend the first 10 or 15 minutes of all the rest of the classes this semester trying to take you to a volcano somewhere, at least on slides, as best I can. And since we didn't go to Yellowstone, um, I thought I would at least uh, show you a bit of a, about what's going on up at that park. Um, so I've got a few slides, and I've got some rock samples that you can look at at break today. We'll do the same thing we did last week. We'll go like 45 minutes, take a break, and, and then finish up. So as I'm sure most of you are aware, Yellowstone's a caldera, and I don't know where everybody is in their background, but we'll start pretty basic in this class and then get more advanced. So a caldera is a collapse feature into the Earth's crust, and it usually forms when a volcanic eruption is so big and prolonged that it starts to evacuate part of the magma chamber that lies beneath it. Um, some of the more recent calderas that have formed, uh, Mount Pinatubo back in 1990s, even going back to Santorini, which is about a thousand years old, it's Greek set of islands in the Mediterranean, they erupted for quite some time before the caldera collapsed. Um, Santorini, it's reported that it erupted 28 days straight. Really big explosive eruption. And then the crust foundered, and as you can see in the second diagram over on the right, large blocks of crust go plunging into the magma chamber that was partially evacuated. When that happens, you tend to get massive explosions because it forces out a lot of that liquid between the breaks in the blocks that are falling into the magma chamber. So the actual caldera forming part of the eruption tends to be the most explosive, but you can have explosions and big eruptions going on for days. Um, at Pinatubo in 91, it went on for about two days straight, really big, powerful eruptions before the caldera formed. Places like uh, Santorini, a month, or something like Yellowstone, we're not sure how long it took for the eruptions to drain enough material so that the crust could sink into the magma chamber and create these big explosions. But the one thing that we do know about calderas is that they tend to remain active long after the eruption that forms them. So they may sit around for a few years, a hundred years, maybe even a thousand years, but then that magma chamber beneath tends to regenerate. It tends to push up on those crustal blocks. They'll sometimes lift up. Parts of Yellowstone have lifted up more than 10 feet in the last hundred years. Uh, they didn't even know it was happening. They did a road survey, I think, back in the 1940s, and then they resurveyed the road back in the 1980s to put in new roads, and the survey numbers didn't match up at all. And they started looking at it, and it's like, wow, some of these areas are literally feet above where they were 30, 40 years earlier. So when they saw that rise, they started putting in lots of equipment to monitor it. And what's happening at Yellowstone is that sort of breeze. It goes up and down and up and down. It'll go up a few feet in a few years and then it'll recede and then go up and down. Nobody quite knows what it means for future eruptions. That's a process called resurgence and it's been seen at other large calderas. There's one in California called Long Valley that erupted 600,000 years ago about the same time when the last Yellowstone eruption happened and it's doing the same thing. So it's sort of breeze and nobody's really sure why. Sometimes you get eruptions. Um, if you've been to Crater Lake in Oregon, 
There's a nice, cool volcano that's literally formed in the middle of the caldera over time. So these things can remain active long after the caldera producing eruption itself. So Yellowstone is an exceptionally large caldera for Earth standards. Not the biggest, but one of the biggest. I'll show you some numbers here in a couple of minutes. So this is a schematic of what they think Yellowstone looks like. So you can see the caldera itself. The caldera is huge. It's about 60 miles across, so it extends from here to DIA. And you really, there's only one or two places on the ground in Yellowstone where you can get a sense of the caldera and even sort of see the shape. There's a mountain on the north side of the caldera called Mount Washburn. It's a little over 10,000 feet. And if you get up on top of that, you can kind of see the land of the south is all lower and somewhat flatter. That's why they call it the Yellowstone Plateau because the center of that caldera is basically flat, but it extends so far that it looks like a plateau. Um, it's believed that beneath Yellowstone today there is a large batch of granitic magma, probably down about three miles and roughly the width of the whole caldera, so it's a 60-mile wide pool of magma. Not sure how deep it extends, but several miles. And remember, granitic magma is pretty evolved, if that stuff erupts, the extrusive equivalent of granite, remember what rock type? If granite magma comes to the surface and cools on the surface, it's not granite. What is it? You guys remember from probably physical geology? It's rhyolite. Okay, so you tend to get a lot of rhyolitic magmas there. Um, in fact, you get lots of obsidian. Obsidian lava flows are all over Yellowstone. And that's what happens when rhyolitic lavas freeze at the surface. They tend to form glass. And we'll talk a little more about that in class today. But because you have so much heat from the magma, you get lots of groundwater in this area. So it's a great area for hot springs and geysers and all sorts of hydrothermal activity. And that's what Yellowstone is mostly known for is its hydrothermal alterations, giving it yellow colors. So I don't know, how many have been to Yellowstone? Nobody's been to Yellowstone. Okay. I know, I want to take you. So this is a, a map of the last caldera. There's actually been a number of eruptions at Yellowstone, okay? Quite a few. I'll show you, most people know about the three main ones in Yellowstone, but there's actually a lot more that go back through time. I'll show you a diagram in a second. But this is the outline of the caldera from the last eruption, 640,000 years ago. And if you've been to Yellowstone, when you do finally get there, driving around Yellowstone Park literally takes you all day. You will drive all day and you will not see the whole park. And yet you can see how much of the park is taken up by the caldera. Okay? Now, look at Yellowstone Lake. Where does Yellowstone Lake sit relative to caldera? Parts of it are in the caldera, and parts of it are out of the caldera. There was a geologist a few years ago, um, this was back about the time where they discovered that the road system in Yellowstone had been rising, and he just likes to go to Yellowstone. He's a seismologist from the University of Utah, Bob Smith, and he hopped in his canoe here and canoed down this way. 
And when he hopped in his canoe over here within the caldera, everything seemed fine. Nothing looked unusual. But when he got out here, everything was flooded. And it's like, well, how do you just flood half a lake? You know, that doesn't seem right, right? I mean, lake levels, they're level. They go up, they go down. But nothing was flooded over here. In fact, the water looked a little low. And yet, when he got over here, it was all flooded. And what he figured out was the caldera had actually lifted. And that forced water down to this end of the lake. It put this end of the lake up out of the water so it looked shallow. And then this area ended up being flooded. So he sort of discovered independently from the surveying that the caldera was doing something really weird. So just based on his own observation, he was able to tell that that caldera was still active, even though it erupted well over half a million years ago. You can see some of the um, other famous features in Yellowstone. There's Old Faithful kind of within the caldera itself. Right now, the hottest place in the park is the Norris Geyser Basin. It's noted up there kind of in the northwest part of the park, right near the edge of the caldera. Things there have been going kind of crazy for the last five or six years. They're having lots of new geysers that are coming back to life. Uh, the heat flow is higher than it's ever been. They've had some explosions that have thrown big rocks into parking lots. Nobody's been killed yet, but they're a little bit worried about it. And what's interesting is if you look at West Thumb, this part of Yellowstone Lake here, notice the shape is kind of round. This is actually a big explosion pit that's about 10 miles across. And it was a hydrothermal explosion, hot water. Um, it's been some time, I don't, have, I don't remember the exact date, I think I have a slide that tells you when, but this was from a big steam explosion. So it wasn't magmatic, there wasn't any sort of lava or magma that came out, it was just hot water that flashed the steam enough so that it made this ginormous crater. And they're a little worried that Norris might do the same thing. The whole geyser basin may just blow itself to pieces. And they certainly don't want people in there when that happens. So they're monitoring it really close. They've got seismometers there and um, temperature measurements going on, as well as looking at the deformation of the ground to see if any telltale signs come along that something's unusual and they should evacuate the area, but there's really no precedent. All they know is that West Thumb blew itself to pieces a long time ago, but they don't know what sort of activity led up to it. So they're kind of flying blind with hazards predictions for what might or might not happen with the Norris Geyser Basin. So you see a little scale down there at the bottom too, 10 miles across, so it's a big area. So here is a diagram of kind of the northwestern part of the U.S. So here's Yellowstone right here. Within Yellowstone Park itself, there's been three caldera eruptions. There was one 600,000 years ago. That's the outline that you've been seeing on all the previous diagrams. There was one 1.3 million years ago right on the Idaho border. It was a bit smaller than the most recent one, but still pretty big. The biggest eruption within the park happened two million years ago. And basically the size of both of the later calderas combined. But then if you look through time, all these numbers are in millions of years when it erupted. And you see that there's lots of calderas that sort of march their way across southern Idaho into southeastern Oregon. And what happens to the ages as you go to the west? 
gets older and older. So this is believed to be a hot spot. And 16 million years ago, North America was much farther to the east. We think the hot spot more or less remains in place. And then the North American plate gets shoved to the west. So it just starts burning sequential calderas across the landscape. So this hot spot's been active for at least 16 million years. And very active. And active. Putting out calderas. I mean, it's not just volcanoes. No, these are big calderas. I mean, you look, they're all about the size of the three that are within Yellowstone. And how many are there? I don't know. There's about 10 of them. So 10 huge caldera eruptions in 15, 16 million years. So, yeah, active place. What's really curious, too, is nearby, and it's not known if these are related in any way from a process standpoint, but up here, about the same time when these calderas start forming, the Columbia River flood basalts form as well. So if you go up there, these are huge, long lava flows. They probably originate here in eastern Washington. But some of these lava flows were so long that they reached today's coast. So lava flows that are 300 miles long. So massive outpourings of basalt up in this region, about the same time where you're getting massive rhyolitic eruptions down here. Now, are they related in any way? No one's been able to say yes. But it's curious that both of them sort of started right about the same time and really not that far apart, just a couple hundred miles apart. So is there a relationship between those two or is it purely coincidental? Nobody at this point really knows. But if you travel across sort of uh, southern Idaho, it's just one caldera after another. There's volcanic rocks everywhere. So for a volcanic person, it's a pretty great area to spend some time. So here's another map of Yellowstone with the three calderas. The most recent one has those kind of in the darker purple, but it has two darker purple dots in the middle. Those are the areas of resurgence or uplift. Those are the two areas that are uplifting the fastest. So the whole caldera isn't lifting up evenly. It's lifting up sort of in two pieces and really not sure why but it's making kind of a big dome shape. And you wouldn't notice it from the ground because maybe at the most it's as high as the ceiling. It's forming over 50 or 60 years. But that's what the survey data tells us. So there's West Thumb erupted about 174,000 years ago. So well after the caldera forming eruption, you got the steam blast. And then the really big caldera from 2 million years ago kind of encompasses the other two. So on a scale for volcanic eruptions, the two million year old Yellowstone eruption ranks as one of the biggest eruptions on planet Earth ever. More recently, the Toba eruption down in uh, the southeast or southwest Pacific was a little bit bigger. One that's not on here, it's probably the biggest one ever on Earth occurred here in Colorado, down in the San Juans. The Fish Creek Tuff was probably 4,000 cubic kilometers. So 
another third bigger than Toba. And it's interesting about thing about Toba, there's been studies of human DNA. And if you look at mitochondrial DNA, the DNA that's passed down from your mother, they can look at mutations in that DNA and mutations in DNA pop up at sort of a set rate. And they're looking at how many mutations are in human beings and they're sort of tracking it through time. Long story short is the mitochondrial DNA suggests that about 74,000 years ago, human population dropped to less than a thousand people on earth. We almost went out. So about 30 years ago, geneticists were studying, it's called the genetic bottleneck for humans. And they're seeing that, wow, you know, we almost checked out as a species about 74,000 years ago. And the geneticists had no idea at all of what could have caused that. And there happened to be a geologist who was sitting at a talk by one of these geneticists, and he goes, I know exactly what that was. So they started talking, and it's now believed that that Toba eruption almost wiped humans off the planet. Really, really close. So we almost went extinct because of a massive volcanic eruption really not that long ago. So you can see here the Yellowstone eruptions. They're on par with Toba. So where should the next eruption of Yellowstone occur? It's going to happen in the park, out of the park. What do you think? Well, so think about it, right? So you have a hot spot, right? And what's happening to the plate on top of the hot spot? It's moving to the west. So the next eruption of Yellowstone will probably take place a little bit east of the park, continuing that trend. And that's where we would have camped, was right outside the east gate of the park, right where the next eruption will probably take place. And if you look at them, do the math on this. So I don't have, well, I guess all the eruptions up here. So the last three eruptions at Yellowstone, one was 2.1 million years ago, one was 1.3 million years ago, and one was six to 700,000 years ago. So how many years between eruptions? Six hundred to 700,000 years, right? How long has it been? About six to 700,000 years. That's where all the concern comes from. That's why people think, oh, Yellowstone's gonna kill people. But geologists have looked at these last three eruptions and it looks like there's been at least 10 to 40,000 years of volcanic activity that precedes it. Lots of small little eruptions that start over a really long time scale in human terms. You know, in geologic terms, 40,000 years, it's nothing. But, you know, for us, that's a long period of buildup. So when we start getting eruptions at Yellowstone, I mean, it could happen any time, but they're not likely to cause these big calderas but people are gonna freak out if it does happen while we're still around. So you can see, let's see, there's Mount St. Helens, there's a little green dot down there. We'll talk about Mount St. Helens maybe next week. So Mount St. Helens was the last big eruption here in the lower 48 back in 1980. And it killed about 70 people, left about a billion dollars worth of damage. And you can see compared to these other eruptions, it was just tiny, tiny, tiny. 
So volcanic eruptions can vary quite greatly in size. This shows some of the ash cover, just going out and looking for deposits of ash all over North America. This is where you can find Yellowstone ash. Basically, there are deposits still out there that cover about half the country. Now, obviously, there was more ash than this, but a lot of that ash gets blown away, washed away, and doesn't get incorporated into the rock record. So this is just where it was thick enough to be later buried and preserved. So it's probably a continental scale eruption. Definitely affect everybody who would be living in North America at the time. Would everybody die? I doubt it, but we'd certainly be impacted by it. Would it be a worldwide event? It's hard to say. Toba certainly was. Okay, so we're going to talk about things that come out of volcanoes over the next few weeks. But one thing about this granitic magma is that it's super stiff and pasty. We talked last week about the viscosity of materials. This stuff is so viscous, it essentially doesn't move. I talked about maybe it'll move this far in a day. And that actually affects it when it cools, too. Because when things cool off, they want to turn into a solid, right? But in order for something to become a solid, all of the various molecules and atoms, they have to wiggle around and find compatible partners and bond together. That's how you get crystals. That's how you get minerals. But this magma is so thick and pasty that this stuff just can't move into place. So it never forms crystals, but it cools off completely. What do you get if magma cools completely but doesn't form crystals? You get glass. And that's what I have up here. So here is a hunk of obsidian. This is a really nice piece of obsidian from the Cascade Range. Probably the best obsidian you can find on planet Earth. It's amazing. Um, there's no crystals in here. It's not technically a solid. Kind of looks like a solid, right? If I bashed you in the head with it, it would feel like a solid, right? But nothing's bonded together in here. So from an atomic standpoint, it's more like a liquid because it's not bonded together. You know, if I smacked you on the head with this, it's so viscous that it can't deform when it hits your head, so it feels solid. But glasses that humans make, if you go to, let's say, the east coast of the U.S., there's some churches that date back to 16, 1700s. They're now four or 500 years old. They have these big, tall glass panes in the churches. If you look at the base of these hundreds of year old churches, the glass is thicker at the bottom than it is at the top. So over time, it has slowly flowed down. Imperceptibly, but you get enough time, it does. And what will happen with this is that slowly over time, there's still heat acting on this, right? Just from the environment. There's some heat. So everything's vibrating. And slowly over time, things will vibrate and move enough that they'll get in position and they'll start to bond. And then a little more vibration, a little more movement, another molecule will bond. And another one will bond. And if you give it a couple million years, in this case, about 600,000 years, your obsidian starts to crystallize. And this is something called snowflake obsidian. You get these white crystals that's actually crystallized plagioclase. So over time, this starts to devitrify. 
This is about 2 million years old, and it's probably about 70% crystals at this point. The oldest obsidian I know is about 15 million years old. Anything older, older than that is completely solidified. So it's still going through the process. It just requires millions and millions of years for it to happen. So these two uh, samples actually came from Yellowstone. So you can kind of take a look at those during break. So that's what's happening here. Those, that's called devitrification or deglassing. It's turning into crystals. And that'll just keep uh, growing with time, those little crystal patterns there. But it takes millions of years for it to happen. One thing else that's going on in Yellowstone is that it's not the only volcanism in the area. So over here on the east boundary of the park are the Absaroka Mountains. And these are all volcanic as well. But they're older volcanics. And most of them are andesite. Andesites tend to occur where you have subducting plates. Is there a subducting plate there today? No, we have a subducting plate off of the coast of Oregon and Washington. But all of these volcanics here are in the 50 to 70 million year range. So 50 to 70 million years ago, there's actually a subduction zone probably over where modern day Idaho is. It would have been a coastline and then this would have been a volcanic chain really not unlike what we have in South America with the Andes. And there are some great volcanic features in that older volcanic rock that sits on the edge of Yellowstone. So this is kind of what we're thinking about here. This top diagram where you have ocean plate slipping beneath the continental plate, forming volcanoes, in this case forming those Absaroka volcanoes. What the Absarokas are really well known for are their petrified trees and forests. So this is, uh, this is what the area looks like. If we had camped, we would have camped actually right in that meadow right there. It's right outside the park. So you drive up this valley and then you hook back into the park. So this area right here actually isn't in Yellowstone Park. But it's every bit as beautiful as anything in the park. The reason it was left out is that there's no thermal features over there because the caldera hasn't gotten there yet. The next caldera will probably blow this stuff to smithereens. This is right where the next caldera should erupt. So this is called uh, Pilot Peak and Index Peak. It's two of the more famous landmarks just outside the eastern boundary of Yellowstone Park. And what you find for volcanic rocks there, what, what, what's going on there? What does that look like to you? You see chunks of rocks, and it's cemented together with some fine-grained material, right? This is volcanic mud flow that is formed in the area, then come to rest, and then sort of congealed into a rock. So these are what are called lahar deposits. Lahar is the Indonesian term for mud flow. So what happens is you get these huge volcanoes, and then there was obviously some sort of rainy season, and that rain would wash away lots of volcanic debris in big, massive mud flows, and it would cover up forests. And when you cover up a forest with this mud flow deposit, 
there's no oxygen in the ground, so the trees can't decay like they normally do on the Earth's surface, and they petrify. So you have areas in that region, both in the park and out of the park, where there's massive forests that are now all petrified. Dozens, hundreds, sometimes thousands of trees. There's been 30 or 40 different species noted. Um, some of them are redwoods, and some of them are eight feet or more in diameter. Pretty impressive. So that is one redwood stump right there, turned to solid rock. Some of you guys know Curtis. Curtis is a big guy, and the stump puts Curtis to shame. And there's several trees down here. This is the Lamar Valley in the park itself. This whole ridge, and you can see in the background, it's just all the hard deposits from those Absaroka volcanoes. And massive, there's another tree, so that's me, my wife, and you can see the diameter of the tree. I'm about six feet tall, and that thing's every bit as wide as I am tall. And that stuff is everywhere, if you get off the trail and look for it. So... If I get a chance, like I said, next year, I would love to take a group back up there. You guys are all welcome. I'll let you go for free. So here is what the park looks like today. There's the edge of the last caldera. Again, you can see it cutting through Yellowstone Lake. I mentioned Mount Washburn earlier. That's the one place where you can climb. You can actually get to the top of this, it's about 10,000 feet. And then you can look and see this huge depression. And then the Absaroka volcanoes are over here. Okay, do you guys have any questions? So when we take a break, I'll let you come up, take a look at some of the rocks. I've written down descriptions on the board here so you can at least play with a rock or two. All right. So like I said, what we'll do in the first few classes is sort of march through some of the background information that we need to know to understand why volcanoes behave the way they do. And then we'll spend the second half of the semester talking about the effects of volcanic eruptions. So the first half of the semester will be kind of heavy with the geology, physics, and chemistry. Today's going to be mostly physics. So we're going to talk about melting stuff. It's hard to melt rock. It's really hard to melt rock. And there's some requirements for melting rock. The bonds that hold rock together, as we talked about last week, are really strong. Those silicate bonds, really, really strong bonds. So they require a lot of energy. So you've got to heat them up a lot to get them to the point where they will break. So a lot of our rhyolitic rocks will melt around eight to 900 degrees. Andesites and dacites will melt around 1,000 degrees. And basalts melt around 1,100 degrees. So you have to heat this stuff up to those melting points, and that requires a lot of energy. Different earth materials heat up differently. I'll give you a good example. What do you, if you want to go and fry an egg tonight, what are you going to fry your egg in? You go home and what do you pull out of the cupboard? A pan. And what's your pan made out of? 
Is it made out of rock? Yeah. It's made out of... Well, it's made of... It's probably what? Aluminum, copper, some sort of metal, right? It's not made out of basalt. Right. It's not made out of sandstone. But yeah, we have those things. I could, I mean, I could fashion a pan out of basalt if I wanted to, right? It would be a shitty pan. Why would basalt pan be a crappy pan to cook an egg in? Because it would take forever to heat it up. Yeah, it, different materials heat up differently. Things like rock require an enormous amount of heat to get hot. Stuff like aluminum, you don't have to add much heat and that temperature changes really fast. That's why aluminum's great because it doesn't require all that much heat to get hot. If you put a basalt pan on your, on your stove and turn the heat on, you might come back in an hour and it's still not going to be hot enough to cook your damn egg. Maybe you come back five hours from now and it finally is heated up enough and you cook your egg and then guess what? Your pan stays hot for the next day or so because it absorbed all that heat and then to cool off it has to get rid of all that heat. So rocks not only require a lot of heat in order just to make them hot, they don't heat up very well. They're really poor conductors of heat. So rocks, you've got to add a lot of heat just to get them hot enough to get close to melting. And then to actually get them to melt, you've got to add some extra heat. We'll talk about that in a minute. So that's what I have here. You know, the specific heat of basalt, that's a measure of how much heat is needed for every kilogram of basalt to raise the temperature a degree. So if you have 2.2 pounds of basalt, it takes 1,400 joules to raise its temperature one degree. Water's even worse. It's really hard to heat water. Water has about four times, three times as much specific heat as basalt. So point being, just to make this simple, different materials require different amounts of heat just to heat them up. And rocks require a lot of energy. Okay, that's just to get them hot. That's not even to melt them yet. That's just to get them close to melting. In order to melt something, you not only have to get it to its melting temperature, you then have to inject a whole bunch of more heat. Because just getting it to the melting temperature isn't going to melt anything. You have to then break the bonds to melt it. And that requires extra heat. That extra heat is something that we call latent heat of fusion. I'm going to go through this in detail in a couple of minutes. So if you haven't dealt with this before or don't remember it well, don't worry about it. I'm going to cover it in nauseating detail here in a minute. Okay, so to melt rock, you've got to heat it up. That requires a lot of energy. And then once you get it to its melting point, it's still not going to melt. You have to add in all this extra heat to break the bonds. Okay, and that's called latent heat of fusion. So let's say we have rock that melts at 1,000 degrees C, okay? So in order to melt it, we have to heat it to 1,000 degrees C, right? And that requires a lot of energy. 1,400 joules for every kilogram of rock for every degree we want to raise its temperature. And then once we hit 1,000 degrees, all we have is solid rock at 1,000 degrees C. 
Now, if we want it to melt, we have to add in this extra energy called latent heat effusion to actually break those bonds. And if you have a cubic meter of basalt, meter by meter by meter, just to break the bonds once you get it to its melting temperature requires about as much heat as you would generate with a 55-gallon barrel of oil. It's a lot of energy. That's just to break the bonds. You won't even raise the temperature of the material adding in that heat. All it does is break bonds. And again, I'll show you a diagram of this in a minute. It's probably easier to explain this using a substance that you know pretty well. In this case, it's going to be water. Most of you have boiled water before, right? It's not easy to boil water. You know, you turn up, turn on the stove, put the pot of water there, and it starts, temperature starts going up, right? And yet when it gets near the boiling point, it just sort of sits there for a while, right? It's really hard to get water to boil. And then once it boils, if you turn the heat off for even a second, it just stops boiling. There's a reason for that. So let's take a look at what happens with water when we heat it up. Okay, a couple of terms. You guys have all heard of calories, right? Calorie has a really specific definition. And it's actually related to water, so that's why I use water as an example. So a calorie is the amount of heat that you need to raise a gram of water. A gram of water is the same as a cubic centimeter, is the same as a milliliter. Small amount of water, right? A big drop. So in order to get a big drop of water to go up in temperature, you have to add one calorie for every gram of water you have. So if you have a gram of water and it's 12 degrees and you want to raise its temperature to 13, you have to add a calorie. If you add two calories, it'll go from 13 to 15. 10 calories, 13 to 23. And that's a little different than a food calorie. A food calorie is actually a thousand of these things. In physics, they call it a kilocal. So one food calorie is actually a thousand of these physics calories. I like to call them. The other way I got the other way around? Yeah. A thousand food calories. I'll look into that. I'll look it up at half time here. Okay, so let's start with the gram of ice at minus 20 degrees, okay? So if we're minus 20 C, water is going to be in a solid state. So it's going to be ice. And there's a gram of it. Remember, a gram is not very much. Now, I want to find out how much energy does it take to raise the temperature on that piece of ice and turn it into steam at... 200 degrees C. So I want to take this ice and I want to raise its temperature to 200 degrees. Okay, so it's going to go through some changes, right? Starts out as a solid, it's going to melt, and then it's going to flash to steam, and then we're going to heat up the steam. Okay, so let's go through this whole process. Now remember, the specific heat is one calorie for every gram for every degree you want to raise it. Okay, so 
our one gram of ice is at minus 20 degrees. How many calories does, is required to raise the temperature to zero for one gram of ice? Should be 20, right? You have one gram, requires a gram for every degree, and we want to raise it 20 degrees, so we need 20 calories. What do we have if we add 20 calories to this ice that's at minus 20? What do we have at the end of that? We have ice at minus 20, one gram of it. We put in 20 calories. What do we have? You still have ice at zero degrees, okay? Now we're at a place where it's going to change phase from solid to liquid. We have to break bonds. So in order to break bonds, we're going to have to add in some extra energy. Okay, so we go from minus 20 to zero, requires 20 calories, and at that point we have ice at zero degrees. Now we have to add in some extra energy. How much extra energy? Well, it depends on the substance, but for water, it's a lot. It's an awful lot. It's 80 calories just to break those bonds. So if we add in that extra 80 calories, what do we have? We now have been able to break the bonds, right? We now have water at zero. We now have water at zero. So it only took 20 calories to raise the temperature 20 degrees. But then once we got to that phase change, we had to add in 80, and the temperature didn't change at all. All that heat was absorbed by the bonds to break them. So the phase change requires a lot of energy. Okay, so we now have water at zero. What if I add in one calorie? What do I have? One more calorie at this point. So I had water at zero, right? I had in one calorie. You have water at one degree. Water at one degree. So how many calories do I have to add in to raise the temperature to the next phase? Well, we got to go from zero to 100, right? Water's going to boil at 100 degrees C, so we're going to have to add in another 100 calories, right? So let's summarize to this point. So to go from ice at minus 20 to zero requires 20 calories. Then you have to break bonds to melt it. And that requires 80 calories. So we've now used 100 calories. We've raised the temperature 20 degrees, and we've melted the material. So now we want to keep going up. So if we go up another 100 degrees, we're going to use another 100 calories, right? So now we're 200 calories into this, right? What do we have now? We have water at 100 degrees, right? But what happens at 100 degrees to water if you keep adding in heat? If you add in enough heat, you'll start breaking the bonds that keeps the liquid together and you'll turn it into a gas. And this is where the energy requirement is really ridiculous for water. It requires 540 calories. That's why boiling water is really, really difficult. Just as a tangent, we have a lot of people on this planet, right? 
and lots of people on the planet don't have enough water, fresh drinking water. And yet our planet is covered with salt water, right? So desalinating salt water is obviously something that would be nice to be able to do because then we would have an endless supply of fresh water for people. Well, one way of desalinating ocean water is to boil it. What you do is you boil water that leaves the salts behind, you collect the steam, you cool it off, and it turns into fresh water. But in order to boil water, you need a ridiculous amount of energy. So desalinating by, that's called distillation, is extremely energy intensive. And in fact, it's just so expensive that we basically don't do it. But this is why, it's because of this latent heat. In this case, we call it latent heat of vaporization. Do the salts and other things in the water change uh, what's needed to boil it? Like how much energy is needed to boil it? Yeah, when you have salt water, it has a slightly different boiling point. Right. Um, and then as you leave more and more salt behind, it becomes slightly more concentrated. So it changes it again. But bottom line is that you still just need it, a ridiculous it amount. a lot of energy, I yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we started at minus 20. We added 20 calories to get it to zero. We added 80 calories to break the bonds. We added another 100 calories to bring it up to 100 degrees. And then we added 540 calories to break those bonds. So I think we're sitting, if you add it all up, at 740 calories. Now what do you have? What's our temperature and what's our state of matter at this point? Our temperature is 100 degrees and our state of matter is steam. Steam, okay. And I said we wanted to have steam at 200 degrees, right, ultimately. So to get steam at 200, what do I have to add? Another 100 calories. Okay, so in order to go from ice at minus 20 to steam at 220 required 840 calories. What was most of that heat used for? Just to break bonds, not even to raise the temperature. So bringing that back to, yeah, 620 to change phases, only 220 to raise the temperature. So roughly three times as much energy just to break bonds, not even changing the temperature. So when we bring that back to rock, rock is really difficult because, the, first of all, the melting point is really high. We have to raise the temperature 1,000 degrees. And then once we get there, we have to add in all this latent heat as well. All right, let's take a little break, and we'll move on after this. Okay, so that whole thing I just went through with the heating and the latent heat of fusion, latent heat of vaporization, it's all kind of wordy. Um, I have a little graph here that can kind of explain it as well. We'll go through it fairly quickly. So we're going to start at minus 20 with no heat, and then we're going to raise the temperature. So to go from minus 20 to zero for one gram of ice requires 20 calories. 
So it would look something like that. Now we're at zero degrees, but we're still at ice at zero degrees. We have to break bonds. So we have to add in 80 calories to break bonds. When we add in those 80 calories, the bonds break, but the temperature doesn't go up. Okay? So that's the phase change. That's latent heat of fusion. Okay, so now, after adding in 100 calories total, we are sitting with water at zero degrees. Okay, if we want to raise the temperature of water, one gram, it requires one calorie for every degree. So to go from zero to 100 requires another 100 calories. We're now sitting at water at 100 degrees. This is the boiling point of water, but to actually get it to boil and break all of its bonds, we have to add in the latent heat of vaporization, which is a huge amount of energy, 540 calories. We then break the bonds. We now have steam at 100 degrees. We want steam at 200 degrees, and we have a gram of it. We have to add in another 100 calories. So total of 840 calories, 220 just to change the temperature, but 620 to change phase. What happens if we go the other way? Okay, let's start with steam at 200. And now the steam releases its energy, okay? It needs to cool off, right? In order to cool off, it has to get rid of some of its heat. So it releases its heat into the environment. So to drop 100 degrees, what does it have to do? It has to get rid of 100 calories, right? And it does that. So as steam drops from 200 to 100, there's a gram of it, it's going to give off 100 calories into the environment. Basically, the air around it, or if it's in contact with other rocks, could be the rocks around it. So if it gives off 100 calories, what do we have? Steam at 100 degrees, right? If we want it to condense into water, what does it have to do? It has to form bonds to come together as water, right? And in doing so, remember when we went the other way, it required 540 calories? In this case, to form water, it's going to give off 540 calories into the environment. So it has to lose 540 calories in order to become water at 100 degrees C. Okay, if we want that hot water to cool off and freeze, what do we have to do? It has to get rid of some heat, right? To drop it down to its freezing point, there's a gram of it, it's got to drop 100 degrees, it has to give 100 calories off into the environment. Now what do you have? Now you have water at zero, right? To freeze it, it has to form bonds. When you form bonds, that releases energy into the environment. In this case, it's going to release 80 calories. Now you have ice at zero degrees, and if you want to cool off ice, you just have to get rid of a calorie for every degree, for every gram that you want to drop it. So if you have a gram, want to drop it 20 degrees, you have to get rid of 20 calories. So my grandparents, when I was, when I was born, my grandparents didn't have electricity at their house. They lived in the northern part of Michigan, so they didn't have refrigeration. But my grandma had vegetables all winter long from her garden. But she didn't have a refrigerator. And it's cold up there. I mean, it's damn cold up there. How did she keep her veggies from freezing? 
There wasn't enough room in the house. Couldn't just keep a house full of vegetables with all the kids running around. This is what everybody did back and then, and it's all based on latent heat. My grandma knew about latent heat, even though she, I think she only had like a seventh grade education. What they would do is, they didn't have basements, but they had a crawl space under the house. So what they would do is they would enclose that crawl space with wood, and they would put a bunch of barrels of water down there. Okay, and then they put all the vegetables down there too. Now as the water, as the temperature starts cooling off, right, what's that water in the barrel, what's the water in the barrels going to do as it cools off? It's going to release heat. It releases heat into that crawl space. And at what point does it release a lot of heat? When it freezes. So when it starts to freeze, all this heat starts coming out of the water. And it basically insulates that crawl space. So all they would have to do is just go down every couple of days, and if it started to ice completely over, they'd just break up the ice to expose more water. And then as that froze, it would give off this tremendous amount of heat. And they were able to naturally refrigerate without freezing the bejeebers out of their carrots and beets and stuff. They would stay right around 32 degrees. Even if the outside temperature was minus 50, the crawl space would stay right around zero because of all the heat coming out of these big buckets of water that would stick under there. It was basically like sticking a mini heater underneath because when the water froze, it gave off all this heat to the environment. So we're going to use this concept when we start talking about melting rock here in a minute, but I wanted to kind of go through this with you with a substance you might be a little more familiar with. Okay, so going the other way, 840 calories get released into the surroundings. So when you heat things up, it requires heat. When you cool things off, it gives off heat. Okay, so going back to what we first talked about, in order to melt something, in this case rock, because we're going to make magma, because this is a class in volcanoes, we need magma, we need heat in order to raise the temperature of rock to its melting point, and then we need a whole bunch of heat to break those bonds and actually create the melted material. Now, every mineral that we have in rock has a slightly different heat budget. Slightly different specific heat, slightly different latent heat. But the bottom line is it requires a ridiculous amount of heat to melt rock. It's really hard to melt rock. If it wasn't hard to melt rock, we would have volcanoes everywhere. We'd have volcanoes in Iowa, but we don't. We only have volcanoes in certain environments on Earth. And that alone should tell you it's really difficult to melt rock and get it up to the Earth's surface. Or just it would be everywhere. So to kind of summarize where we are right now, it takes a lot of energy to heat up rock and you have to heat it up to really high temperatures because those bonds are strong. And then once you get it to that really high melting point, you gotta have a whole bunch of extra heat to break the bonds. 
And think of it from the other way too. If you do get melted rock, when it cools off, it gives off a tremendous amount of heat. And it takes a while for melted material to give off its heat. I made that mistake once and only once. We're in Hawaii, there were some active lava flows. We walked up to them with our rock hammers and we were pulling little bits off with the pointy end of the rock hammer, just about maybe this much. So I pulled off a little glob of hot red lava and let it cool by the side. And about an hour later, I had gloves on because you always wear gloves out there. I picked it up and stuck it in my pocket. That was just a really stupid idea. It burned through my pants in about three seconds, left a nice old welt on my leg. I mean, it was still hundreds of degrees C, even though it was completely black. And even though there was only a few grams of it, it just takes a long time for it to get rid of that heat for the temperature to drop to a part where a human being could pick it up and not burn themselves. So lava flows, think of a whole big lava flow then. How long is it going to take a lava flow to cool off? So there's a lava lake that formed in the 1950s in Hawaii called Kilauea Iki, about a thousand feet deep. The thing is still molten in the middle today. You know, it's been 60 years and it still has a molten core. It takes that long for it to lose its heat. So these are long-term processes just because of the energetics required to heat stuff up and then for it to cool off as well. All right, so in order to get melting, I think the whole point so far is that we need a lot of heat. So where does this heat come from? Well, we know the Earth is hot inside, right? Where did all that heat come from? Well, a couple different sources. One is that there's probably heat left over from when the Earth first formed as a planet. So what we know about planetary formation is that in order to get a planet-sized Earth, you have to bring in a lot of smaller space particles together. When they collide, they usually collide with a lot of kinetic energy. That kinetic energy is transferred into friction and heat. And in fact, when the Earth first formed as a planet about 4.6 billion years ago, there were probably so many of these impacts that the Earth was completely melted for a while. The heaviest material then moved to the core of the Earth gravitationally. All of the heavier metals like nickel and iron and the lighter materials like silica sort of buoyed to the top buoyantly. And the outer crust cooled and a lot of that heat trapped inside the Earth. And it's estimated that today about a half to a third of the current heat loss from the Earth is probably due to this original heat from when the Earth first formed as a planet. So we have lots of heat in the Earth. In fact, if you go to the core, the core of the Earth is about as hot as the surface of the sun. It's dang hot down there. 
about 20 years ago, I, uh, I got to go to the bottom of the Homestake gold mine up in South Dakota. It's the deepest gold mine in North America, about 10,000 feet, so about two miles down. It takes about 20 minutes to get to the bottom of this thing with a high-speed elevator. And as you go down, it gets hotter and hotter. It was 123 degrees at the bottom. That's only two miles down. And it went from ambient up here, average, you know, 40, 50 degrees, to 120 some degrees down there. But remember, the core of the Earth is about 4,000 miles down. So about the distance from LA to Boston. So just think if you keep increasing the heat, how hot that's going to be. So the inside of the Earth is really hot, no doubt about it. There's a lot of heat down there. But again, it's probably not enough to melt things up here at the surface. So again, these impacts create enormous amounts of heat. On some planets, they're enough to initiate massive melting. If you look at the moon, we have giant craters. And in a lot of those craters, the craters are filled with lava. And just based on the timing of things, it seems like that lava formed during the impact. So just one big impact can melt a lot of rock. So when the Earth first formed as a planet and melted everything, that's a lot of heat. And we still have impacts today. When your planet has an atmosphere, a lot of the space junk that might impact your planet actually burns up as it goes through that gaseous envelope, the atmosphere. But if you have a planet or a body that doesn't have an atmosphere, like Mercury or our moon, those impacts can just slam into that planet without the atmosphere filtering them out. And like I said, you can look up at the moon and see craters that are filled or partially filled with melted rock. So in some places, it's still an important process today. Here on Earth, Venus, there's enough of an atmosphere to keep away a lot of the large impacts. But every once in a while, something big gets through. Like 65 million years ago, big enough to initiate a mass extinction. Another source of heat is radioactivity. We have a lot of radioactive elements in the Earth, and when they go through their decay process, they give off heat. Different elements give off different amounts of heat. So the four most abundant long-lived radioactive elements are listed here. You have uranium-238, uranium-235, thorium-232, and potassium-40. So that second column shows how much heat is produced. And what you'll notice is that uranium-235 
is about five to six times more heat productive than the next closest isotope, which is uranium-238. But one thing to pay attention to is look at the last column. That's the abundance. As it turns out that uranium-235, even though it gives off the most heat, there isn't a lot of it. In fact, it's really, really rare. If you look at something like potassium-40, it gives off about 1 20th the heat of uranium-235, but it's super abundant. And the neat thing about potassium-40 is that it's just the right size that it likes to fit into lots of our minerals that are common in volcanic rocks, like the feldspars. The feldspars love this stuff. Fits in there really nice. So this is a element that's pretty abundant, gives off a fair bit of heat, and is available to heat up rock and eventually melt it. So there's different elements that produce heat, some produce a lot of heat, but there's not much of them. Others don't produce as much heat, but there's quite a bit of it. So overall, potassium, thorium, uranium, they provide a fair bit of heat within our Earth as well. So we get lots of heat from the original accretion of material back when the Earth first formed as a planet. And then we have additional heat that comes in all the time as these radioactive elements release heat. And if you look at the half-life, you can see that the half-lives are ridiculously long, billions to tens of billions of years. So what that means is there's still a lot of this stuff. There's only 4.6 billion years old. Most of the half-lives are longer than this. So that means we have more than half of the original material from when the Earth first started. So this is sort of a long-term way of producing heat that will be around for a lot longer. We talked about this just a minute ago, that back when the Earth first formed as a planet, it probably heated up enough so that everything melted. The heaviest elements, the densest elements, migrated towards the core. So we have a nickel-iron core. And then the lighter materials went to the top. Lots of silica. much less dense than the nickel and iron. So we have this process of differentiation where we have core formation, crust formation, and the mantle is made of kind of the intermediate density materials. How do we know we have a metal core? We've never been there. We've never even been to the mantle. How do we know we have a metal core? Any idea? Okay, we do know that the Earth is a magnet, right? And one of the ways that you can initiate a magnetic field is to have moving metals. So that tells us that we probably have some moving metals somewhere in the Earth, so that makes sense that perhaps we have moving metals in the core that creating our Earth's magnetic field. Anything else? How do we know it's nickel iron? It could be a lot of different metals that could create that, right?
don't we study how like the Okay, so we have earthquakes that send P and S waves through the planet, right? S waves do not travel through liquids. So if we have a big earthquake on this side of the Earth, what we've noticed is that the other side of the Earth doesn't get any S waves. And that's because there's probably a molten layer within the Earth that's dampening them out. And in fact, you can look at where the S waves do occur and get an idea of just how big that is. So we have earthquakes that give us some idea of the state of matter, and the speeds are determined by the density. And we know nickel and iron is about the right density to match the earthquake patterns that we have. We also have meteorites. And a lot of the meteorites we get are from planets that either came together and exploded or didn't quite form, and we get lots of nickel-iron meteors probably from the asteroid belt where we had a planet that may have come together and just couldn't stay together. And finally, we know the gravitational strength of the Earth's gravity field. And once you know that, then you know the mass of the Earth. We know the density of the rocks in the outer part, and we know that there has to be something really, really dense inside. And in fact, you can do the math and figure out that you need material that's 11 grams per cubic centimeter to give the Earth the right weight. And that just happens to be what nickel and iron weigh. So we have all this indirect evidence of what the inside of the Earth is like. Okay, another source of heat, and it's probably not a big deal here on Earth, but it is a big deal in some other places, especially one of the moons of Jupiter called Io, is tidal energy. Jupiter is a big planet. It's got lots of mass. So it has really big tides. And Io gets squished by this tidal squeezing. Here on Earth, our moon revolves around the Earth, and it's enough to warp the water bodies on the surface, and we get tides along coastlines. Well, it's so strong on, Mer Mer or on uh, Jupiter that it actually changes the shape of the moon. It's so strong that it squishes the moon. And as the squeezing occurs, there's lots of friction inside the Earth or inside that moon as the moon adjusts to the new shape. And this interior kneading is enough to create enough heat for volcanism. And in fact, this moon of Jupiter called Io is the most volcanically intense body in the whole solar system. It's got dozens of volcanoes that just erupt constantly. It's an impressive place. I'll try to show you some uh, images of it in coming weeks. Okay, so so far we have several sources for heating. We've got leftover heat from when the Earth first formed as a planet. We have heat from the decay of radioactive materials. And we have some of this tidal energy, this tidal kneading. Now, the Earth is cooling off. In fact, its average temperature is dropping about 100 degrees C per billion years. So it's about 400 degrees cooler than when it first formed as a planet. Heat is being liberated, escaping from the Earth's surface constantly. So the Earth is cooling off, but it's on our time scale, it's not very significant. 
So if we look at our nearby planetary neighbors, if we look at Mars, it doesn't appear as though Mars is volcanically active. It doesn't appear as though the moon is volcanically active. It doesn't appear as though Mercury is volcanically active. We're not completely sure about Venus. We haven't explored Venus enough and sent enough return missions to Venus to look for changes at some of the volcanoes. Some people suggest that, yeah, maybe there could be activity there, maybe not. But Earth is really active. We have lots of volcanoes. So what's different about the Earth than these other planets that gives us so much volcanism? Well, let's start with Mars. Mars is a small planet, right? Why might Mars not have volcanism? What's that? It did. Mars has the biggest volcanoes in the solar system, by far. Olympus Mons is 90,000 feet high. If you put it on Earth, it would cover Colorado completely. That's just one volcano on this tiny planet. But there's no evidence that there's been any volcanism in the last two billion years. So it looks like Mars is dead. Why would Mars be dead? It released it small. It's a much tinier planet, so it had much less heat to begin with. Mars probably just lost its heat, much like the moon. The moon probably lost its heat as well. Mercury is tiny. It lost its heat. But now you got the Earth and Venus, and they're about the same size. We know Earth has lots of volcanoes that are active. We're not sure if anything on Venus is at all. So if we go through these, the moon... And the plate tectonics are one thing that differentiates Earth from Venus. We know Earth has plate tectonics. We're pretty sure Venus does not. And the Earth has a moon, which might give some sort of tidal heating. And Venus does not. So plate tectonics seems to be pretty important in terms of creating volcanoes here on Earth. The other thing that's different about the Earth and the other planets is the original chemistry. When these planets were first put together 4.6 billion years ago, each planet ended up with a slightly different chemistry based on how far away from the sun the planets were. We just happened to be at the right distance away from the sun that we ended up with lots of water. Venus didn't get much water. Mars didn't get much water. We were in that perfect band where water was stable, so Earth got lots of water. So we have water not only in our oceans, but we have a lot of water in minerals in the Earth as well. We have lots of hydrous minerals. And that could be a reason why we have more volcanism here as well. It's something we'll talk about next week, how water affects the melting point of different rocks. So the Earth is different from the neighbors in that it has a moon, maybe some tidal heating, plate tectonics, which we'll talk about a lot over the next few weeks, and we got a lot of water. So we have lots of water in our minerals. That changes the way they melt. Again, something we'll talk about coming up.